an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's open in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Dearest Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the ways in which you are already at work in our hearts and minds throughout this conference and in a specific way throughout this day as you meet us in this moment. We ask, oh God, that you would um, open our hearts to everything that you have for us. Um, thank you for the commitment that you have called each one of us to in our vocation. And I just ask that um, we would drink in a, a deeper draft of your grace and your power to be able to be faithful to all you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Um, I was traveling along Sunset Boulevard, which is one of our main drags here in town, with my little boy. Uh, at the time, he was about five. And from this conversation, I think I deduced that he is um, melancholic because we're, we're driving along and I noticed that a car dealership that had been empty had been uh, demolished and it looked like maybe they were going to build something. And I said, David, isn't this exciting? They've taken out the old car dealership and something new is going to happen. And he said, it's very sad. I said, sad? He said, my children will never know the town of my youth. town of your youth is still being built. <laughs> but it reminded me of how some people approach the church. They're so quick to lament what was before. And my children won't know the church of my youth. And what I think the Holy Spirit is saying to every one of us is it is still being built. It is still being built. And every part of us are a significant part of that. But some of us are the laborers in the field, and some of us are the overseers, the managers, the generals on the battlefield, and our fathers. And so I want to share some of what I see, um, how I think we need to respond to your role and what your role is as priest to us as a gift from Almighty God. There may be many people who are sort of satisfied to be a Catholic in the pew, but I really want to encourage you that many, many Catholics don't want to be casual Catholics. And if we get into a mindset of being casual Catholics, we'll be casualties. As my husband says, the world is not a playground. It is a battleground. And whether or not we feel it, whether or not we see it, we are under siege. At the same time, we have a confidence that the battle is the Lord's and that he is faithful and will conquer evil and the forces of darkness. So on the one hand, the outcome is certain, but on the other hand, we live in the in-between time where it has to be lived out moment to moment in our lives. God is at work, but we have to respond. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
God is at work in your life and in mine. But you know what? The devil's at work too. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober and be watchful for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. God has a plan for your life, but so does the devil. And only one plan will bring us to eternal glory in Christ. And those of you who are priests and those of you preparing to embrace the priesthood, this incredible call, I urge you to see yourself as a father in the midst of this warfare. First of all, you are the ones who clothe us in Christ through baptism. Second of all, you're the ones who feed us and nurture us through the Eucharist, and I know you know that. Third, you clean us up. It was a funny thing. We had a couple seminarians staying with us, and one of my children, who's actually here on the lead uh, conference that's kind of running parallel with you all, he walked through the room. He was about a year and a half old, and his diaper was hanging quite low to the ground. and it was full. And one seminarian turned to the other and said, I'm glad I'm called to the priesthood. <laughs> and I, I laughed and I said, well, make sure that you are not choosing one call to avoid the challenges of the other. But I said, believe me in the confessional, you will clean up bigger messes than this one. And I think that's true. I think that's true. So you are the ones who bring us to faith. And then you're the ones who are nurturing us in our faith, teaching us the faith, bringing us to maturity. I want to read this verse at the beginning of this talk, and then I want to read it again at the end. And I love this for my husband and for my sons who are now married and our fathers. But I believe this absolutely captures um, what, what God would say to your heart as my spiritual father. Proverbs 14, 26 In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. In your relationship with Christ, as you grow in your confidence in who he is and what he is doing in and through you, as you grow in the fear of the Lord, one of the fruits of one of the gifts of the Spirit, you are creating a refuge for us, your children. Keep doing it keep doing it. Now, sometimes when I am with uh, a crowd that has more married people in it, I will ask, who here are catechists? And a, a kind of a comical thing happens, you know, a handful of people put up their hands and then I say, how many of you are parents? And lots of hands go up and then I say, okay, now I'm going to ask you again, how many of you are catechists? Because so many parents don't fully understand their role in this. And part of what I hope to share with you is what's on my heart, that as you disciple the people in your parish, they in turn need to see themselves as disciplers of their children. How can they be qualified, you know? Well, first of all, they took a vow that they were committed not only to being open to life, but to bringing those children up in uh, educating them in the church and the law of Christ and his church. Secondly, they have the grace of the sacrament of marriage. And they may need reminders that they have that because you, you sometimes can think, well, if this is a sacrament, I should be holy and I'm not very holy. And so how does all that work? You know, it's being open to that call and having that power from the Spirit to then live what he has called us to. Third, love for their children should inspire them. And it's the most natural thing as a parent to teach. 
you know, you, you're holding this newborn and the first thing you're saying to this baby is, I'm your mommy, this is your daddy, you've got two siblings at home. You know, you, you just begin to share life with them. But we need to be more than just sort of generally living Catholic faith in our homes. We need to be more specific. And Pope John Paul and numerous other popes have continually confirmed how decisive the parent's role is because, well, I'll quote him from Familiaris Consortio, their role as educators is so decisive that scarcely anything can compensate for their failure in it. We can have wonderful CCD programs and very godly priests and nuns teaching, but if the parents aren't living it at home, if they're not taking their children to Mass but just dropping them off, if they're not living a life of prayer in their homes, it will be extremely difficult for us to have the children's hearts and minds reached for Christ. So how do we teach the faith well? Well, I think first we can look at the example of how uh, Mary and Joseph taught Jesus through words and through deeds. We know that his parents knew the scriptures. If you ever do a comparison of the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 with the Magnificat, you know that she is making numerous references back to that. Um, there are just beautiful parallels between those two prayers. A typical nighttime prayer for a Jewish mother, uh, sort of a similar to our now I lay me down to sleep prayer is a quote from Psalm 31.5, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And you think of Mary standing at the foot of the cross and hearing Jesus say those words, a nighttime prayer that she would have said over him as his mother, and he's saying it with the fullness of all that that could possibly mean. They were faithful to circumcise him. They were faithful to take him to liturgical celebrations like Passover in Jerusalem. Um, they taught Jesus so that Luke says in uh, chapter 252, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Mary's yes to God at the Annunciation and Joseph's yes to God following his dream are echoed in Jesus' yes in the Garden of Gethsemane. So how did Mary and Joseph teach Jesus the faith at one level? I mean, he's God, but he was also man through words and deeds. And that's how Jesus catechizes his disciples. He instructed a close circle of disciples. He taught very large groups. He even tried to instruct religious leaders, but they didn't always have the ears to hear what he had to say. Besides speaking, then he ministered, he healed, he went and prayed in solitude. And so these are the examples we follow as we catechize. We have to live the message in front of the toughest crowd, which is our own families. Nobody can make it easier to need to sign up for confession than your own family. <laughs> it's not enough to say we just live it because we all live it too imperfectly. You know, the Pharisees were very good at that. And numerous times Jesus points out what they're doing correctly, even though their attitude is wrong, the actions always speak louder than words. And so it's not enough just to say, well, I, my children will learn from my example. Likewise, as priests are fathering us, we need your example to go before us. Some people's faith is so private, they hardly know it exists. The Catechism says this, the Christian home is the place where children receive the first 
proclamation of the faith. For this reason, the family home is rightly called the domestic church, a community of grace and prayer, a school of human virtues, and of Christian charity. It is not enough for for families to just drop their children off at a CCD program or to say, well, if we have a problem, we can always call father. That's good. We want to be supported and and, um, uh, undergirded by everything that's happening at the parish. But we've got to help families bring it home. It's got to be a family catechesis in the home too, okay? Family catechesis, according to Pope John Paul II, therefore precedes, accompanies, and enriches all other forms of catechesis. We just celebrated the Ascension recently, and one of, one of the two sort of captured um, messages from Christ right before he ascended comes from Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus said, excuse me, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth have been, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the close of the age. So how do I apply that? Because of course, he was speaking to his apostles, and those of you who are priests are in in the line of, of those who are specifically called to the ministerial priesthood, but how do I apply this in my family? Well, I bring my children to baptism. I bring them to the church, and then I need to learn the faith so that I can impart it to my children. And we're not to hold back. You know, one of the challenges about being Catholic is I do not get to pick and choose what I believe. If I didn't like what my Presbyterian church taught growing up, There were many other Presbyterian churches I could have gone to. Um, And I know some of my friends who are still United Presbyterians are in real turmoil because a month ago, the Presbyterian church declared for the first time that practicing homosexuals can be ordained Presbyterian pastors. And so I know they're in angst. You know, how can I make a donation when this denomination actively encourages abortion? Um, and even even believes that the government ought to be paying for it, et cetera. One of the difficulties, and I say this at times after talks to people when they say, you know, I love the Catholic Church, but I don't like what they teach about homosexual practice, or I love the Catholic Church, but I have to use contraception, or I, I you know, I can't have any more children, and I was sterilized. And it's like, you know, the, the beautiful thing, but the hard thing is that we weren't given part of the truth in the Catholic Church. It is not a cafeteria where you go down the line and you say, I'm going to take this and I'm going to leave that and I'm going to take this. By the mercy and grace of God, not by anything we have done, but by the grace of God, we have been placed in the church Jesus Christ founded. Amen. And so we must learn all that Jesus has commanded. And then we've got to teach our kids. We've got to teach our kids. So how do we make a home for the word? To build a home that doesn't just look good, but actually is solid. Proverbs 12, 7 says, the wicked are overthrown no more. Excuse me. The wicked are overthrown are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. And nobody gets married hoping it will fail. No one has children hoping they won't be good, faithful Christian people. And so how do we get from where we want to be to where we envision our family to be? 
Uh, Proverbs 24, 3 and 4 says, by wisdom is a house built. By understanding, it is firm. And by knowledge are its rooms filled with every precious and pleasing possession. So we need to build with wisdom. Again, I know you're not perfect, but you are a critical source of that wisdom we need to build these solid families. What's the foundation? It's Jesus and the apostles. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then you're no longer strangers or sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. If we want to have a home that is solid, a family that is built on the rock, we have to go to Christ and the apostles. And then we need to build. St. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3, 12, and 13. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So we receive by grace this magnificent faith. And part of what I love about baptizing babies is there is nothing the baby does. You know, when we're adults, we can, we can begin to think how important we are, or how much we contribute to the whole process. And it's, the baby is just such a picture of reception. We, all that we have, that all that we do with whatever God has given us is a response to grace. And we do it through grace. We do have to do it. We do have to respond. But it's all grace. And so, by God's grace, we do the good works he has set before us to do. And then the covering of this home is the Father. The Father is so essential, as I read in Proverbs 14, 26. Jesus prayed over his disciples, and he said this, and my dad has decided this is the verse he wants on their tombstone. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. That's why you committed your lives to Christ in the priesthood, to consecrate us to the Father by consecrating yourself. We need to not leave future generations out in the cold. We've got to provide that roof. And it is not enough, it is not enough for mothers to be the spiritual leaders of their homes. Now, God uses mothers, and I would imagine that your mother's faith has played a critical role in your faith life, and I hope so. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm an important part of this in my children's lives. But we know even from secular studies about the effect of religion in homes, that when the father is not religious, and I don't mean religious in form, but in, from the heart, that the children tend to not take faith very seriously. We need men to be men of God. And we need to raise our sons to be men of God. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the things that on our very first date ever, Scott and I were sitting in his room and he was talking about the lack of godly men and I was really echoing his thought and he said, let's just pray right now <laughs> in the middle of our first date. And so we did, we just stopped and we just begged God to raise up men of God. And when I delivered my fourth son, 
and they brought him over and I looked into those deep chocolate brown eyes. I remembered that prayer and it was like, God, this is a very slow way. <laughs> but I'll do that. And now we had a fifth son. So we have five sons to raise into godly manhood. And what a privilege. Oh, what a privilege that is. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. After I became a Catholic, I was out gardening uh, maybe a week later, and I was like, okay, Lord, I understand how I can take a, a non-Catholic Protestant who loves you, who loves truth, and I can share about the Catholic faith and see if, you know, if the Holy Spirit can move his or her heart to come into the church. But is it possible that we could just talk to someone who isn't even a Christian and just not have them go through the route of going to Protestantism first, but just become a Catholic. I don't get how to share the gospel now that I'm Catholic. And it was so interesting. Um, I, I, had, I just didn't hear a voice, but I had this nudge. Well, why don't you use the whole verse? And I'm sta standing there, kneeling there. I don't know what I was doing at the time, gardening. And, uh, and I thought about Revelation 3.20, which I always had used in my little gospel presentations. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the eating part made no sense, so I would always drop that. So I would just share Revelation 3.20a. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my goodness. Not only does Jesus want to enter your heart, he wants to enter as the host and the guest and the meal. The intimacy that Jesus desires is not less in the Catholic Church, it's greater. And we need to share that. We need to welcome Christ into our hearts and into our homes. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We want to learn, and then we need you all to teach us how can we go deeper in loving God with everything in our being. If any of you have been to Israel, um, you'll notice that hotels actually have, uh, hotel rooms rather, have a little gold or um, probably brass um, container outside of every door. And if you open that, you would find a little scroll, and on that scroll would be written these words which summarize the law, and Jesus quoted them in Matthew uh, and in Mark. But this is Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God Excuse me. The Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And I'd like to give you a few examples, hopefully, that you could even use in encouraging parents to really take this to heart. You know, you're not in a profession. It's not like there's a lawyer, a doctor, a priest. God has called you uniquely to image him, to be in persona Christi. And so as Jesus taught his disciples, please teach us these things so that we live it more faithfully. Uh, as Philippians 4.9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, do and the God of peace will be with you. So how am I, as a mother, to teach my children? Okay. I'm to teach them diligently, which means it's really a task. It's really a responsibility, and I'm to do it throughout the day, not just like once a day, but, but all throughout the day. When we walk by the way, when we go in, when we 
uh, lie down when we get up, and to love God with my heart, guiding my children to give themselves completely to God as I want to do, with all my soul, guiding my children in virtue the way I know I need to grow in virtue, with all my mind, I want to challenge them for excellence in studying the faith. Um, I'll say more about that in a minute. And with all our strength, and that's applying our life skill and whatever God's called them to, doing it with their whole heart. Okay, so a wordless witness is not enough. Okay, it's not enough to recite the creed, we need to believe it. It's not enough to just know the Ten Commandments, we are to obey them. <laughs> Radical thought. It's not enough to just know our prayers, even though there are beautiful prayers that we can memorize. And that's, that's a beautiful way to pray. But we also need to pray them from the heart. And we need to know how to talk to God without it having to be a rote prayer. Um, some different children have had different experiences with their understanding. And to me, this is part of the diligence. Because we teach them a certain way, but we don't, we don't always know what they get and what they don't get. For instance, um, our daughter Hannah was six, and we were praying the rosary, and we thought, it's probably time for her to lead a decade. And so, you know, Hannah, do you want to lead? And she goes, okay. She begins, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And Scott and I kind of opened one eye and looked at each other and just piously bowed our head. And then the second one, Hail Mary, full of grace. And by the third one, we said, honey, we got to interrupt the prayer. What, what are you saying? And she goes, you know, hell, Mary, full of grace. We're like, no, it's hail, like, hi. <laughs> She's like, oh. <laughs> so who knows how long she had prayed with us not knowing that. A lot of times children misunderstand phrases, like of the Lord's Prayer. You know, one child said he thought it was Howard be thy name. Um, one little girl told me, uh, she was a teen when she told me this, but her older sister always called her a snot when she was acting up. And so when she said the Lord's Prayer she, for a long time, she thought she was saying, lead the snots into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, I have a friend who every night her mother prayed over her, Psalm 23. And she remembered walking down the hallway in the elementary school to see if surely goodness and mercy really were following her. The other thing is teachable moments happen when you least expect them. We were standing around in the kitchen. I'm trying to think of how old everybody was. I think Hannah was either six or seven, so Jeremiah was maybe three. And, uh, and Jeremiah turned to me and he said, when does God sneeze? And I thought that was a great question. And I was about to answer it when Hannah chimed in and she said, well, God does not have a body, so he wouldn't sneeze. And then right then Scott walked into the room and he said, 2,000 years ago. And Jeremiah looked at him and he said, you know, we've been to Israel. Do you remember how dusty it is? And when Jesus took on human flesh, he was really a man. And he walked around and he got dust in his nose. And I am sure that he sneezed. And when Jesus sneezed, God sneezed. I mean, what a fun conversation, you know, getting us into the hypostatic union and the <laughs> incarnation. And yes, and, and everybody had something to contribute. One of the things that St. Paul praises about Timothy's formation, what prepared him 
to embrace the fullness of the faith was the diligence of his mother and grandmother in teaching him the Jewish faith. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, St. Paul writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There is so much I would love to unpack from that. I'm going to have to limit my comments to just a few thoughts. First of all, we have received a gift in having the sacred scriptures. This is such a gift. This is the words of God in the words of men. And the same spirit that inspired the writing of the word of God is leading the church in its interpretation. And I don't know how much you've thought about the gift that is, but having come from Protestantism where there are more than 27,000 denominations that don't agree on how many sacraments there are or if you call them sacraments or ordinances, how power is released, what difference it even makes. It is a powerful gift, something to be celebrated that the church is being led by the Spirit in its interpretation. There is no other denomination that teaches there is such a thing as a deposit of faith that cannot be changed. Now we need to understand why the church teaches what she teaches. That'll never change. Our children need to understand how has the church come to the decisions she has in teaching us these things, but it's a difference in teach us about the faith as opposed to I have to prove to every generation Jesus is fully God and fully man or we're throwing that one out. Okay, And it's the Holy Spirit sent at Jesus' request that has led the apostles into all truth. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of men, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay. So what we have recorded is for our instruction to help us conform our lives, our thoughts, our deeds to Christ. We need to soak in the scriptures if we want it to form us. That's why, you know, it's so funny. I, I run into so many Catholics who say, I don't know that the Catholic Church has really wanted us to read the Bible. I think, you know, that's kind of, that could be dangerous. You could become Protestant. I'm like, no, not if you read it from the heart of the church. I remember the first Bible study we had in our home when we moved to Steubenville. It was, I had been Catholic for six weeks and I was so excited finally to be able to come back to Scott's Bible studies and feel like I could trust them because <laughs> they had really been hard <laughs> during those in-between years of him being Catholic and mine not. And I said, what book are we going to study? And he said, Revelation. And I said, oh, it's so weird. <laughs> Why do we have to study Revelation of all the Bible? And he said, it's so Catholic. I said, it can't be. He said, you come to the Bible study and you'll see. And, and I'm going to share a couple of thoughts from it, but I am telling you, with all the conversation recently about people saying, you know, Christ is coming back and all of that, I wish the Catholics could have proclaimed that the book of Revelation is the Mass. It's the, it's 
the, the book of the Word and the book of the Eucharist. And I mean, it is so Catholic from end to end. And part of why it's so misunderstood by so many non-Catholics, because they don't have the mass to help it, them interpret it. And if you're curious, my husband has wonderful materials on that I would really encourage you to explore. We need to soak in the scriptures to understand our faith. And the cool thing is that we can always tell others around us if we don't understand how to explain something that we can learn it. My children buy that. I do not have to have every answer. I just have to tell them, I'll study it. I'll come alongside you. We'll learn together. And it's never too late to learn. Now again, we have to test to make sure that they're understanding what we're saying because we use, in our home, we use a lot of theological language. Um, I wish I could remember what David just said last night, but I, it, it escapes me. We, the bishop came uh, for dinner five years ago, so David was five, and we're all sitting around the table and I did not tell him protocol in terms of how to refer to the bishop. I just wasn't thinking. I was thinking about dinner. And um, so we sat down and all of a sudden he goes, Bishop, I have a question I have always wanted to ask you. We're all like, he said, yes, David, what do you, what do you want to know? And he said, did Jesus know everything when he was just a baby? That's a great question. And so the bishop said, you know, well, I will answer it partway and then your dad will fill in the blanks, you know. <laughs> That was great. That was great. One Thanksgiving, we were on our way to Cincinnati. We had a few hours in the car. And, um, and I showed Scott that Joseph's second grade book had a lot of wrong answers. It was a, it was a catechism uh, booklet. And he was not understanding how Jesus was fully God and fully man. And, you know, um, all the details of that, which can certainly be <laughs> challenging for adults too. But I said, do you think we can talk about this a little bit in the car? Just to help him understand better. And he was like, absolutely. So he said, you know, let me tell you a few things. And so he began to teach. And he said, now I want to ask you some questions. And apparently David thought he was part of the conversation. He was also, he was very little at this point. He was three. And, um, and Scott said, okay, now from what I've taught you, is Jesus fully God? And Joseph said, yes, he is. And David, yes, he is. <laughs> all right, is Jesus fully man? Yes, he is, Dad. And David echoed again, yes, he is. And Scott said, now, is God eternal? And Joseph said, yes, he is. David said, he is not. Like with all the emphatic utterance a Han can make relative to theology. <laughs> and we all turned around, you know, seven of us looking at him and said, what do you mean? And he said, I know what a turtle is. I have seen a turtle, and God is not a turtle. <laughs> he was right. He was right. Now, not only is Scripture helpful for teaching correct doctrine, but it also helps clarify false doctrine. And it's so important. It's so important so that we can answer correctly when we're challenged. Ephesians 4.14, we need to grow in knowledge, quote, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles, end quote. Sometimes I think that there are too many missed opportunities. 
I think that we need to have fathers who challenge their children, and we need priests as fathers to challenge us to learn our faith. That's the way to avoid a clericalism that makes us retarded instead of mature. We need to be told the truth and why and challenged with the fullness of the adulthood that we possess to learn our faith. We need to understand that when we pray the creed, for instance, those phrases were formulated under intense conversation. At times, even fistfights breaking out on the floor. How is that possible? Because truth matters. Because getting it wrong about understanding who Christ is and what he's done matters. Sometimes holy men were driven into exile. Do people understand that? Or do they just say the words because they're a mess and that's when we say the words? We need to understand the doctrinal formation, formulations so we're strengthened in the theological battles of this day. Scripture is also profitable for correction. We, we can't help it. We live in a culture. We, we don't even understand ways, and subtle ways, in which we buy into what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be married, what it is to have the act of marriage. And so we need that correction, that clarity of truth that stands out away from our culture that says this is the standard and you must bring your heart and your mind and your soul and your practice to that. I'll give you an example. There are so many parents who do not find their tongues when their children inform them they're going to live with somebody. And they just hope that they approach a priest who will get them married and then at some point maybe they'll go to confession. If my children had a bowl of food with poison, rat poison in it, on the table, and a bowl of good food, my husband would throw himself on top of the poison food to keep my children from it. How is it possible that if we would do that for rat poison food, which will only take their bodies, we do not speak when they are taking their supposed loved one to hell. At one level, at one level, my husband feels very free to tell my children, I don't care if you like me. My role is not here to make you like me. I'd like you to like me, you have to love me, but it's okay if you don't like me right now. One of my friends on the, on the hill where we live tells her children when they grumble about doing chores and things, she goes, well, I am the meanest mother in the neighborhood. <laughs> and she says it with a smile, but she's going to hold firm. Why? Because she loves them. We have got to be stirred. And, and dear brothers in Christ who are our fathers, please speak the truth. Don't withhold it. Don't withhold it because you're going to not be liked. I can't imagine how hard that is. I really can't because my children are still stuck with me, you know, if they want to eat, <laughs> if they want to go to college, you know. I mean, it's, I have leverage that you may not feel like you have. And, and you, 
that is part of the loneliness I'm sure that you endure as priests. And why I hope you find this rich brotherhood here so that you can really fortify each other as you step out in truth. And of course the truth has to be shared in love, but you've got to speak the truth. You've got to. Because eternal souls are hanging in the balance. And I would say you also need to speak to your parishioners so they speak to their children. Because some, many of these parents are making your jobs far harder, your ministry far harder, because they will not say at home the tough words. We've got to speak the truth. And what I tell my children is I didn't create this standard. So I have to come to this standard of purity. You have to come to this standard of purity. You cannot fornicate. I cannot commit adultery. We have to pray for each other. We have to challenge each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they're little. God set the standard. So when, when parishioners get ticked off at you, what do you mean I can't contracept? What do you mean I can't sterilize? And they're putting their anger on you. Let them know you didn't create that standard. But it comes from their loving Heavenly Father. He's the one who made us. He's the one who designed marriage. He knows how it will work. And as we live our lives in conformity to it, we experience the depth of the beauty of what that sacrament is, is possible to have, to, to enjoy. Now, Scripture is also not only profitable for correction, but for training in righteousness. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to memorize Scripture. Protestants do not have an extra gene to make it easier to memorize Scripture. And you need God's Word in your heart. It's not enough just to be able to pick up a Bible and read it. We know from Psalm 119 and 11. I put it to a tune. I'll sing it to you. Because I taught it to my boys when they were two and four. Two and four. And they knew the reference as well as the verse. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word. I have laid up thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How many times do temptations come when you're not in the middle of a Bible study? <laughs> you know? So, and how did Jesus answer temptation? With God's word. With God's word. We need to know it. You know, it's called the sword of the spirit. Now, we have a, we have a special Japanese sword in our home. I've forgotten exactly what it's called. It's not a scimitar. <laughs> oh, what is it? It's a, it is a samurai sword, but I can't think of what it's... There's a name. That's it, a katana, thank you. <laughs> My sons would not be happy. I didn't remember that word, but thank you. <laughs> okay, we have a katana. Nobody wants me to pick that up. I have no clue how to hold it, let alone wield it, Okay. If the scriptures are the word of God, if the scriptures are the sword of the spirit, we've got to be taught how to rightly handle it, okay? We've got to be taught how to use it. 21 years ago, my dad decided on several different commitments that he felt would have a profound impact on his life. He's a Presbyterian pastor. And one of those commitments was to memorize a certain number of scripture verses a year. And I was with him last weekend and he continually reviews them because it's a lot of scripture he's now committed to memory. 
but he, he's, he definitely confirmed over 1,000 verses he has committed to memory in the last 21 years. And when you talk to him on the phone, it flows out of him. When he prays over us, it's, it's just God's words just come to his heart. And so memorize God's word. Put it there so that when you're in the dark of the confessional, you can, you can quote it. You can bring Christ's word to that person. Now, it doesn't always have the desired effect uh, because sometimes we can have a great idea. You may have a wonderful idea for a homily and it, and it just doesn't work. Or I can have an idea of disciplining my children. And I had one of those moments with my seven-year-old daughter, Hannah. We were in our little schoolroom, and she just had a nasty attitude. She just was grumpy from the word go, and she did her math, and I said, okay, A for drama, can we do math? You know, it just, it, she just was really not getting it, and so I had this scathingly brilliant idea. I said, I want you to go out of the room, and you can come back as soon as you can tell me 10 things you are thankful for. I thought, okay, this is going to be a nice redirection of attitude. So she goes out of the room, and I knew we were in trouble. When she marched into the room, no observable change of attitude, struck a pose and said, I'll read it myself. I thank God I'm none of the following. Michael and Gabe were little. We tried not to make eye contact because we really were starting to find this funny. She began, I thank God I'm none of the following, bald, Homeless, a idiot, earless, she just had her ears pierced, dead, selfish, shy, terrible, stupid, or a Muslim. <laughs> we must have prayed for a Muslim country that morning and it was on her heart and at that we busted up, which absolutely had no positive effect whatsoever on her attitude. So even scripture can inspire us to do something that it may not have the desired effect, but it still was worth the effort. Ephesians 6, I want to read this passage on spiritual warfare. Hang with me, I've got 10 minutes and I'm watching the clock, but I really, really want to share this because I think we can so overlook it. Now, seeing some of the titles of your other talks, you may feel a little bombarded, so I'm sorry if, if it seems like overkill to go, go through this. But one thing Scott said to me recently, which just echoed in my soul, he said, um, okay, didn't go back far enough. He said, did you notice that the longest passage St. Paul ever speaks about marriage is immediately followed by the longest passage he ever speaks on about spiritual warfare? That was an eye-opener. I really, I really think there's a profound reason for that. When I watched our first son get married, he's our second-born, Gabriel, I remember kneeling there and thinking, they have voluntarily allowed bullseyes to be painted on their backs. They are attacking the, the darkness with light. They desire a holy marriage, a godly family. And as they said those words of the vow, I really didn't think they heard all the words. I mean, you know, it's so easy. It's like, you know, uh, what is it? Um, for richer or for poorer, you know, 
in sickness, and in health, you know, I'm sure all the positive ones, but sitting there after almost 30 years of marriage at that time is like, oh, those words are huge. All that they're embracing to the limited understanding they had, they were really assenting to what they were saying. Each couple that enters into marriage in holiness is a profound picture to the world of Christ and the church. And the evil one does not want them to succeed. But he's not the one in charge. And if they can come and you feed them, if they can come to the confessional and you can clean them and send them back out with strength, if they can come and you feed them the Eucharist, you will strengthen them through these sacraments to go back and live that sacrament of marriage Now, I want to read these verses from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You cannot be a good priest, a good deacon, a good seminarian. I cannot be a good wife and mother apart from the strength of the Lord. So we've got to yield ourselves to him, but in his strength, we can be strong. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we are not contending against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not our spouse. Our enemy is not our child. Our enemy is not the church secretary or whoever it is that you might, the head of your parish board. We're not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. They are there. It doesn't matter whether or not someone on television, you know, dismisses them or just says, you know, There's no hell to go to. You know, it's just different degrees of heaven or whatever. We know the truth. We know the truth. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Besides all these, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Out of all of the weaponry, there are only two things that I can discern as offensive weapons. Scripture and prayer. Scripture and prayer. Both are available to us. Both can strengthen us. And they come together so powerfully in the liturgy, in particular. I wish I could have time, and I don't, to go through some examples from the book of Revelation. But I will summarize with a, with a couple of comments. We see this in the book of Revelation because the bowls and the chalices that, of course, you think of in terms of mass are the chalices of the wrath of God poured out in Revelation 15. In Revelation 17, we've got this drama of the host of heaven fighting the host of the evil one and Mary's participation and the saints' participation, and it concludes with the verse, sorry, it's 1217, not 17, 1217, that we are her children that he is doing battle against, those of us who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. In fact, I wasn't convinced. I was maybe three months away from becoming Catholic, but I wasn't convinced that Mary was my mother. She seemed like maybe a stepmother or a second mother-in-law. Not, yeah, anyway, 
and I was talking to a man and on the phone, a good friend of ours, and he said, well, do you bear testimony to Jesus and keep the commandments of Christ? I mean, is that who you want to be? And I said, of course. And he goes, okay, well, what do you do with Revelation 12, 17? And I'm like, I don't know Revelation 12, 17. Go get your Bible. I'll hang on the phone. A Catholic who knew his Bible. And I opened it up, and I have no idea how I missed that. But it is so obvious. She is our mother. And she is involved in spiritual warfare, and we are going to be because we are her offspring as well as Christ. It's not a matter of whether or not we choose to be in spiritual warfare. That's not a choice. We are. By virtue of our baptism, we are. But we are not alone. We are not alone in this. We've got myriads of angels around the throne. Mass is much more than just a prayer and praise service. It is a real call to arms. Jesus has conquered the evil one, but he knows we live in this in-between time. John 16, 33, I've said this to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Evil is a part of our existence. It does not have to control us. St. Paul says in Romans 12, 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the things we can tell our children is choose one kind act. Do one more thing for Jesus. Offer that terrible itching uh, poison ivy for some soul or for some intention. I remember one, one of my children was six years old and he was very ill with the flu and I said, Joe, can you think of anybody you can pray for? And you know, without pausing, he just closed his little eyes and said, Jesus, somewhere someone's thinking about having an abortion. Please don't let her do it. Yeah, thank God. God. 1 John 2, 12 and 14, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his sake. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. And so we're all in the midst. We're all in the midst of the struggle. We're all in the midst of attack. We need to be brothers and sisters in Christ to each other, calling each other on, encouraging each other. But even more, those of you who have been uniquely called to serve Christ as his priests on earth, I beg you, please father us well. Draw on all the grace of the sacrament that you've been given and be that channel of grace to us. And you will provide a refuge for us. Let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Most gracious Lord, I thank you that you have provided far beyond anything that I ever knew as a child, such grace. And I thank you for every man here who has said yes to you in that particular call to priesthood. Please help us to know how to love them and to serve them in a way that honors you, Jesus. And please call them to the depth 
the fullness of fatherhood for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.